This is Lead with a Question. What is your purpose in this life? What are you going to do to contribute and to add to this thing? And you search for meaning and we have suffering and we have all of these things that challenge us. But every human being, once again, has this potential and purpose to be able to create something. And what is that for you? Uh, You know, find that. And, you know, if you seek it, it will be revealed to you. Hi, I'm Rob Callan. We live in a time when people are seeing that the old way of doing business is broken and that leading into the future requires something new, a deeper focus on humanity, the courage to let go of power and ego, a desire to nurture the conditions for co-creation, and the bravery not to have all the answers. On this show, I, along with my friends Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen, connect with guests who embody these principles. And whether household names or not, they've shattered the status quo, often as misfits, to shape the future with others and achieve miraculous things in work and life. With so much at stake in the decisions we make, especially at the global, societal, and environmental levels, it can be easy to feel like our options and our resources are ever diminishing. We are emotional creatures, and the narratives we embrace matter. Our guest today has spent years tracking some of the most important metrics on Earth, things like literacy rates, access to food, and availability of medicine. But far from being an escapist framework to deny the existence of real-world problems, our conversation today left us with the feeling that we had just visited a refueling station, and we were now ready to jump back in to keep doing the hard work. So today, we'll consider the hopeful question, are we actually doing better than we think we are? A conversation with economist and author Gail Pooley on this episode of Lead with a Question. I kind of go back to Thanos. You know, he came, you know, the, the, the uh, Infinity War movie comes out and he makes a statement. He says, the universe is finite. Its resource is finite. If life continues to z- exist, life will what, cease to exist, something to that effect. You know, the first part of that statement is true. You know, we live on a finite planet with a finite number of atoms. But resources uh, become, you know, atoms become resources when you add knowledge to them, and it's knowledge, it's knowledge that has this, doesn't appear there's any limit to our ability to discover new knowledge. So it's the growth of knowledge. If Thanos really understood that it's not atoms, economics is not about atoms, economics is about knowledge. And it's the growth of knowledge that allows us to escape poverty. We have the same atoms that... (laughs) That, you know, my friend George Gilder says the difference between our age and the Stone Age is entirely due to the growth in knowledge. They had the same uh, material stuff that we have, but what's the difference between six ounces of sand and six ounces of, of iPhone? It's knowledge. 
and you can think about it this way. We, we, we discovered about 4,500 years ago that if you heat sand up, it'll turn to glass. And then that led to, you know, we made these little beads and that led to, well, can we make a jar? And then could we make a window? And then could we make a fiber optic cable? And each step, it's still the same sand, but each step we just continue to add knowledge to those atoms. We make things valuable and also abundant when you add knowledge to them. And that, that knowledge discovery and creation and sharing and consuming process is really what economics is about. So if you think about knowledge and you think about the source of the people, the things that discover knowledge, it's human beings. So uh, think in knowledge, not in atoms. And suddenly this world of scarcity disappears. You know, people have had these disputes over atoms and it's like we're competing over atoms when we should be collaborating over this, the discovery and sharing of knowledge. Knowledge has this other feature that I can share it with you and I don't lose it. In fact, when I share it with you, the amount of knowledge doubles. And so we have this ability to discover it and then share it. And then just by virtue of consuming knowledge, it grows. Because when you consume knowledge, you think about other things. And that, that, that perspective, I think, is the proper perspective. And it explains, once again, why we've, we start with this fixed number of, of, think of a piano. We have a fixed number of, we got 88 keys on a piano. Well, how many songs are in a piano? It's kind of a trick question because the songs aren't in the piano. <laughs> the songs are in the minds of human beings, but you think about the possible combinations of 88 keys and it really approaches infinity. And so you can start with a fixed number of atoms and rearrange those atoms. Uh, Paul Romer, he talks about this. He says, you know, we got, these, we got these atoms on the planet, but if you start looking at these combinations of atoms, it suddenly goes to infinity. And we just barely, barely scratch the surface of how we can combine these atoms in different ways. You know, atoms are just kind of one part of our world. Just you think about words or musical notes or all of these things. We are human beings are creators and combiners, and we're, we're constantly doing this. It's almost like we can't help but do this. And if people are free to, to participate in this innovation process, they'll create knowledge and they'll lift everybody around them. They'll lift everybody around them. Love that, Gail. Um, that's such a great take on, on how to, to unify you know, our society that is so divided. I, I look at it in a, a few different ways. <clears throat> you know, there, there's that dystopian view, uh, which a, a large part of society, you know, succumbs to that fear. And, and then I, I have friends and family and just associates that are apathetic. I feel like it's a, another level. They may not be fearful, but they're just like, they're so tired of the divide. They're tired of uh, being bombarded with this dystopian view. And it's like the political system, how can we change things, right? And then it's a very small <laughs> fraction of people I come across that have this hopeful view. And I think you you hit it on the head with, it, it is about knowledge, right? I think most of those people that are apathetic, they're not feeding their minds. They're not feeding their souls. And in fact, they're they're probably not even brave enough to create things with people. And so they're in this lull of life. Um, how can we help 
a rising generation that is just bombarded with this dystopian uh, dopamine hits that they constantly get. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think once again, it begins with uh, familiarize yourself with the facts. And I think part of it is this perspective. Uh, Jordan Peterson, I think his rule number four says something to the effect that don't compare yourself to others, compare yourself to yourself, which, which he means if you look across and you look around at other people, you can find people that are smarter, more wealthy, better looking, and you're going to, you're going to be, you're going to be depressed (laughs) and discouraged. But if you look at yourself yesterday, and he says, it's really, you look back in time. Don't look across space, look back in time and look at your parents and your grandparents. And if you compare yourself to those people, you can be nothing but profoundly grateful versus kind of envious. And so I think that perspective is really important. You've got to think about yourself and where you've come from and where your where history has come from and where you sit with respect to history. And we're <laughs> there's never been a better time on this planet. More people with more time and more resources to be able to create. And and it's like there's never been a better time. Uh and then I think part of it is, as well is recognizing that, you know, every human being on this planet has value because every human being can make somebody happy. You know, every human being can make somebody happy. And it's pretty easy to make people happy. It really is. And when you recognize that and you, you treat other people with this dignity and respect uh, as a potential collaborator in discovering knowledge and lifting us, it makes you treat other people differently too. And we recognize, you know, there's people are flawed and they've got issues, but by and large, people have this potential to, to lift, to, I keep saying lift us all. And it really is this lifting process because look, if I, if you discover something and you can share it with the rest of us and we all think that way, it's like, what if we could all make the world just like 1% better by discovering something new um, and that everybody got to enjoy that, you know, there's, I mean, there's no limit really to, to thinking about what could be done. And <clears throat> I think back to this, if you think in atoms, if you think we live in this world of scarcity, if you are obsessed by this ideology of scarcity that, you know, we're running out, we're not going to be able to do this. It's like you then can become very, very, <laughs> I, I say that this ideology is the most deadly virus that we've ever been infected with, humanity, because it's it's been the cause of lots and lots of contention and wars, people fighting over over atoms and thinking that that it's, you know, we live in this world of scarcity and we, we live in a world of, of abundance if people once again have the agency to go out and discover. Yeah, I, I, it feels like you know, we're at a time where you, know, you had the pandemic and, you know, a lot of people got, uh, say jaded or they went through things, right. There's been loss, uh, loss of loved ones. And so, you know, some of this might be, well, that's Pollyannish or that's a really optimistic kind of naive view. And yet, uh, what we see is overwhelming data that supports what you, what you just said. Uh, I, I remember the TED talk, you know, Bono is talking about ending poverty that became a cause, right, for you too. 
and, or for them. And, and he said, basically, look, the, it's, it's going away. <laughs> like we're, we're making more progress than we ever have before in the past. And, you know, yet a lot of the narrative we, we hear about, you know, whether it's poverty or the environment, it seems to be so stuck on the loss side of things. And we believe that, you know, we just don't make progress that way. Loss can lead emotionally to, you know, sadness. It can lead to anger, right? Versus a perception. And I love that you said gratitude uh, of, of seeing gains, right? And looking back and appreciating, you know, and the fact, I mean, look, the highest standard of living in the really maybe the history of the world, but definitely in our times, um, you know, opportunities. I mean, I look back in my to my parents and their, you know, a generation, you know, a few generations. It's like, well, I've had educational opportunities that I would have never, like they never had. Uh, you know, I, I look back further than that. And, and my history goes back to my ninth or 10th great grandfather, William Bradford, who, you know, was part okay. of Mayflower. Yeah. And, you know, they, they showed up and it's like in the middle of winter, <laughs> hey, start up a country, they're a startup. And all these startups have failed because they've been very self-interested and, you know, and all focused on scarcity, right? And And then when conditions got bad, it's like, well, every man for themselves or every woman for themselves, and then they die off. But this colony said, you know what? We're actually going to work together. We're going to covenant with each other, right? We're going to see it as an abundant future. This is the promised land. We're going to build it. And, you know, half the people die on the boat, right? His wife dies, his son dies. And yet they just stay the course. And, you know, 30 years of him being governor and, you know, a template for what has become a pretty great experiment, right? And freedom uh, that we have here. Um, but yeah, I just, I think the power of of what abundance can do, just that shift for us is really amazing. I just, <laughs> I'm just so embarrassed for myself when I think about those people and what they sacrificed and how it's like, you're telling me you have a complaint today. You have no idea what these people kind of went through. And you think about it, they their standard of living was lower, much lower than ours, and they made sacrifices. So, so our true. life, we could be richer and better than they were. It's like these people, <laughs> these people were so devoted and dedicated to trying to 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 improve the future that they're willing to make all these sacrifices. And then we wake up and we show up, and it's like, how can you be anything but just profoundly grateful for what they've done. And then the question is, what are you going to do? You know, what is your purpose? What is your purpose in this life? What are you going to do to contribute and to add to this thing? And you search for meaning and we have suffering and we have all of these things that challenge us. But every human being, once again, has this potential and purpose to be able to create something. And what is that for you? Uh, you know, find that. And, it, you know, if you seek it, it will be revealed to you. Uh, I, I'm convinced that that's true. And so young people today, um, yeah, we live in a world that, that has problems. But <laughs> look how far we've come and what we've been able to achieve with problems that are, I think, much, much larger than, than uh, you know, we face today. Uh, <laughs> you know, I asked my students, I says, well, you know, what, what would you, what would I have to pay you to never use your iPhone again? 
Because people say, well, how much is it worth? Well, they say, well, I paid $800 for it. It's like, well, how much is it worth to you? I know that's what you paid for it, but what's it really worth to you? And you ask them that question, and I can't get a student that's willing to do that for less than $5 million to never use the phone and the internet again for the remainder of their life. So you're telling me you're walking around with something that's worth $5 million in your pocket. It's $5 million. You're like a five millionaire. And... (laughs) You're not happy about something? <laughs> Your ability to talk to anybody on the planet anytime for basically a penny and being able to access the world's knowledge that's stored digitally for two pennies and, and being able to share that and, and all of this information that, you, that we have now that we're networked together, that we can now really get on these learning curves together and go out and figure something out. And share what you figured out with the rest of us. And we do, you know, markets are key to that because uh, we've got to be able to have people that are free to innovate. And a key element of that is you have to have free markets where people can go take their inventions and see if people value them. It's like these, uh, the piano. We've got 88 keys. That means we've got an infinite number of combinations of those keys. But how do you figure out which one of those uh, sequence of, of notes sounds good? It's markets. So open up these markets, let people share, let prices go up and down so people can discover if they've created something of value. And then and then that process continues. You know, let 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 these things happen. Um, people I think are not really happy unless they have two things. One, they've got to be able to have choice. I want to make the choice. And two, I also want to be able to act on my creative impulses. I want to create and choose. If people are free to create and then to make their choices, they're pretty happy. And uh, so if we can extend those two things in, in people's lives and this abundance that we observed with just basic food is really profound uh, because you take somebody from India, for example, in 1960, they spend eight hours a day working just to be able to buy the food for that day. Well, because the time price of food has fallen by 80, 90%, now they only have to spend an hour a day. So they have, they have seven hours that they have now to devote to something else. Instead of being consumers, now they have the opportunity to be creators and discoverers. So you're bringing all of these people from this kind of just sustaining their life consumption, level one Maslow's hierarchy, you're, you're moving them up this hierarchy because of this, this just basic food abundance. And now they can, they, they can be creators. And so uh, we've never seen more people come into this, at least have the opportunity, the time, really it's the time now to be able to do these other things. So <laughs> I think it's just it's phenomenally uh, exciting about what the potential is now to move forward. We got the technology, we got the time, we're at relative peace. People people aren't hungry. I mean, there are still people that are hungry, but but we are feeding people at a massive scale. And that food, once again, gives people freedom. If they're not, it's hard to innovate when you're hungry. I mean, people can do it, but it's hard. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, do us a favor. Um, could you break down your calculation 
on how you guys came up with this notion of time uh, in terms of abundance and okay. uh, just help, help us understand that for our listeners. So let's begin with this idea that we buy things with money, but we really pay for them with our time. You know, you, you go to the store and you think about, well, you know, a pizza is $20 and I'm earning uh, $10 an hour. That means a pizza costs me two hours, right? So <clears throat> that was what the time price, we call that the time price. It's simply the money price divided by your hourly income. So you have money prices that are denominated in dollars and cents. You have time prices that are denominated in hours and minutes. Okay. So we say, well, what's the time price of that pizza? Well, it's two hours. Well, what's the time price of a bicycle? Well, it's 10 hours. So you think in time instead of money. That's the first step. And time actually offers a number of benefits over money. First of all, time is a universal constant. Uh, it's one of the seven, I think, seven measurements that we use in science. Six of them go back to time. So we've, we've shifted from money, which kind of has this problem because it can change in value over time to the standard of time. So let's think in time instead of money. You know, uh, the other advantage of time price is you can go anywhere on the planet anytime in any currency and figure out the time price. I can go to Paris in 1800 and figure out what the time price is for a loaf of bread. And I can compare that time price to today. So you transcend all of this problem with converting from nominal dollars to real dollars and then, you know, CPI and GDP deflator. You transcend all of that. The other thing that's important about a time price is that innovation shows up both in lower, lower prices, but it also shows up in higher income. So it gives you a, a fuller understanding of what's going on because things can get cheaper two ways. The money price can go down, but if your income goes up, they're also getting cheaper. If I double your income, it's like everything now is 50% off. So a time price, since it's a ratio of those two numbers, actually contains more information than just a money price. So time, think in time. And then once you've done that, go back in time and start calculating time prices. Let's go back to, you know, uh, 1922 uh, and look at the price, time price of a bicycle. You pull out a Sears Roebuck catalog in 1922 and you say, okay, what did the bicycle cost? Well, it's $12.95. Well, that seems like a pretty good deal, $12.95. But then you look at what people were earning. You go, wow, <laughs> you're only earning like 10 cents an hour, <laughs> you know, or 20 cents an hour. So this Bicycles are really costing you like 60 hours to buy. The time price was 60 hours. Fast forward to today and you go to Walmart and you can find a bicycle, basic bicycle for a hundred bucks. And people are earning on average today, uh, a blue collar workers earning hourly compensation, which includes their wages plus all their benefits, about $33 an hour. So you go from something that costs 60 hours to something that only costs three hours. So, from that respect, you say, wow, look at, look at that time price is going down. Now, the way to measure abundance is not – the percentage decrease is important, but it, you take those two numbers and you flip them. And you say 60 divided by 3. For the time it took my grandpa to buy a bicycle, I get 20 bicycles. So I'm, I have 20 times more bicycle abundance than grandpa does. 
So that's the way that we, we shift the thinking is how much time did it take you today and how much time did it take somebody yesterday? And if that time price is going down over time, that's an increase in abundance. And so that's how we quantify it on an individual basis. So your individual abundance is increasing. And, and we started to look at these different products, you know, different commodities. We really were also kind of Thanos comes out with this movie and we said, well, you know, it's kind of like Julian Simon and Paul Ehrlich had this bet. So our initial question was, was if that bet was today, who would win that bet? And we looked at the five original uh, metals that they bet on. They, they had five metals. It was copper, chromium, nickel, tin, and tungsten. And we looked at those and it's like, wow, those are all cheaper today too. And what else might be cheaper? Because the two criticisms of that bet was it only covered five items and it was only for 10 years. So we said, well, let's extend it. We extended it from five items to 50 items. We said, well, let's, let's extend this and look at energy prices. Let's look at food prices. Let's look at material prices. So we have oil and gas and coal. We have food. So we have basic food like wheat and corn and beef and chicken. And then we looked at materials like what's it cost for a two by four? What's it cost for cotton? And then we put metals in there as well. So aluminum, iron ore. And what we discovered is that all of these all of these commodities, we call it the basic 50, all of those commodities had fallen in time price by 75%, about 72 to 75%. And what that means, it's like I walk in the store and everything's 75% off. That means yesterday I got one, today I get four. So my abundance is increased from one to four. That's a 300% increase in my personal abundance. So we saw that and we went, wow, this, <laughs> we were astonished because we expected to find something that had become more scarce or less abundant and not a single one of them had become. Now there are times where something will have an event. I mean, if you have a hurricane in Florida and it freezes, uh, the price of orange juice is going to go up. But over time, that price is going to come back down, you know, once the market kind of makes these adjustments to things. So we were pretty, pretty, uh, pretty, you know, really kind of astonished that when we, when we saw that. And then at the same time, you know, because this dispute between Ehrlich and, and Simon was about resources and population. And Ehrlich goes back to Malthus and Malthus says, you know, uh, resources are only going to grow at this linear rate, uh, but, uh, Population grows at this exponential rate. So this gap, you know, we're going to have this big crash and everything's going to blow up. That was his model. He had this hypothetical model and it wasn't empirically based. It was a model that Malthus put on the table. And so we go back and we say, well, look, <laughs> from 1980, and this was 2018, I think is when we did the first study, population increased by like 72%. So population goes up by 72% and time prices go down by 72%. It's like, how, how could that be? How does that make sense? And it makes sense when you, when you realize that human beings are the creators of resources. They consume resources, but they're creating resources much faster than they're consuming resources because it's knowledge. So once you understand that theory then the empirical evidence starts to make perfect sense. 
So there, there's more people to contribute to society. Right. So this more people thing has a number of dimensions. One, more people means you have the chance of of having more Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and, and Thomas Edison's. You have this this probability increases, but you also have more people that can now specialize in things. You know, you have these little niche specializations, and you also have a much larger market, which means look, if I have this idea, but it costs me a billion dollars. A new an idea for a new drug, and it cost me a billion dollars to discover that recipe for that new drug. But then it only cost me a dollar to make a copy of the pill, right? Well, what should the price be? Well, it depends on the size of the market. If you got a, a million people, that price is going to be, you know, it's going to be over a million dollars per person. But if you got a billion people, the price can be two dollars a pill. So the larger the market, the easier it is to now to take these really big fixed cost types of endeavors and spread them across a lot more people. So it ends up being a lot cheaper for everybody. So you get this kind of virtuous cycle of more people create more value, more wealth, and more wealth allows you to create more of these, more of these uh, idea discoverers, right? So if you think of it that way, and 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 do the model that way, it suddenly says this model that you had, Malthus and Ehrlich, it was based on uh it was based on these assumptions that just aren't true. Now, now Ehrlich comes to the table as a biologist. He was a butterfly specialist. And and those guys are observing populations of insects or chimpanzees or rats where put the group in there, put some resources in there, they consume the resources, they, they grow in population, then everything blows up. The problem is <laughs> those populations don't innovate. They don't innovate. Human beings, on the other hand, when we start to run out of stuff, <laughs> we go make more stuff. We, we can make the pie bigger. It's not this fixed pie. So <clears throat> I think that their fundamental assumptions about how human beings uh, cooperate with one another and innovate is it's just it's a categorical error to say uh, rats and chimpanzees are like human beings, and we can take what we observe from this population and apply it to a human population. I think that's a categorical error. Yeah, yeah, we love that. Uh, I think the thing too that we've noticed when we think about in the business world, corporations, uh, startups, there seems to be this notion that's taken hold in the zeitgeist. Speaking of um, a mis, uh, uh, misread on the data, where people assume that being a shark is the right approach, right? We talked about competition as a theme. You've talked about that. And, you know, where people get very competitive, the businesses, you know, win lose, like, you know, blood in the water in these, you know, boardrooms and there's only so much and it becomes very quarter to quarter. And we see a different notion where we, it's, it's dolphins, right? That that's the future. The next wave, you're talking about creators and co-creation and how people innovate and collaborate differently. And we've observed this in cultures. Uh, we've worked at, you know, with, with teams at, you know, Disney, Pixar, uh, Apple, you know, you look at Nike, so these brands that 
where they challenge each other to think differently, but they come to the table with, you know, egos off the table and building blocks on the table. And they're open to imagining together uh, a different future or bright future. And you know, think about for those people that are in these workplaces that have become very drab, right? They're very, they're very shark oriented, very hierarchical and structured for the zero sum game of like, we're going to win and, but it's at the cost of our competitors, which what yeah, you, as you've outlined, that's a false narrative. So then, and I look at a company like Apple, right? They look in the mirror, they ask themselves the question that you said earlier, which is how can we be better than we were yesterday? What do we need to build? You know, that's different and just pull it out of the ether. We're not going to look at our competitors as to what they're doing. But how do we infuse this hope, this kind of um, perspective into people's lives and their work where they can start to become creators and co-creators uh, with others, where they can start to build, you know, things differently. You've also collaborated, right, on this book, and that's a good example of co-creation. Uh, Ian and I are co-authoring a book, and this podcast is is a co-creation of, you know, our different insights and perspectives. But uh, we're curious is how, how do people, you know, move, move in that direction? You know, I think a lot of this is really leadership. It's inspired leadership that's, that's a vision it's a visionary leaders that are inspiring. And, uh, you know, some of those leaders can be pretty tough, but they can be really inspiring with their vision. You think about Steve Jobs's vision and his ability to inspire people. And, uh, you know, what is Apple? It started as Apple Computer. They were doing these computers, but then they, they evolved and they changed and they, uh, you know, they became a, like a, what, what is Apple today? It's like, are they a, they a phone company? Are they an app company? Uh, you know, are they a camera company? What are they? They dropped the name Apple off their corporate name. It's now just Apple Inc. And what they are is they are they are continuously innovating. They're an innovation company. It's like we're we're going to try to continuously create something of value. We're going to create something, hopefully make some profit on that. Use a big chunk of that profit to do the next deal, and. That that idea that we create in order to create uh, the next thing, that vision of, look, use your time and your resources to create something that will give you something that will let you to continue to do this thing. So back to this idea that, you know, we have this other measurement. We look at personal resource abundance and then we compare that also to population level abundance. So think about, we use a pizza analogy. So the slice is your individual abundance. And what that slice is doing is it's getting larger for everybody on the planet on the average. So everybody's slice is getting larger, but we're also adding more slices to the pie because our population is growing. So we're really growing in two, two dimensions. Every individual is becoming enjoying more and more abundance, but we have more and more people. So we're getting this boom, boom effect. And that really is what you got to look at. What are time prices doing for individuals and how many people do you have on the planet? And then what was it? What was that like in 1980? Well, 1980, we had a lot fewer people and abundance was a lot smaller. So if you think about it that way, you see that we are, we're growing about 5% a year in terms of, of abundance on a planetary level. If you can hit 5% a year, that means every 15 years, you double abundance. Every 15 years, it's like everything goes 50% off. So 
those are what the facts are telling us about it. And I think, I think once again, it's like, look, we do have problems, but look at what we've solved and look at what our potential is to solve these problems going forward. So that's what the facts tell us. The evidence tells us. Yeah, Gail, clearly you're you're very deeply embedded in this work and you've been thinking about it, obviously, enough to teach and uh, and write a book about it. And I'm wondering, has this principle of superabundance always had such a driving influence in your life? Or is it something that you kind of discovered along the way? Yeah, well, I grew up, I was from a family of six kids. I was one of six and in 1972, well, 1968, Ehrlich publishes his book, The Population Bomb. So in 72, I think it was like a sophomore or something. And we had to read that book in high school. So our teacher was really into this, you know, population. And so we read the book and it's like, wow, you know, maybe my parents are responsible for the world collapsing because they're having too many children. So you kind of get caught up. And then 1973, uh, uh, Soylent Green comes out and you kind of have this culture. Limits to Growth publishes their book. And so you got these kind of this, all this population, population. And so you kind of feel overwhelmed with it. And then, uh, you know, so through the 70s, kind of having this kind of hard time thinking about it. And then this Julian Simon shows up. And he's the guy that really put the put the argument on the table and challenged Ehrlich. He said, look, you think the world, you think we're running out of resources. Why don't we bet? Because Simon had done this deep study dive on all of these resource prices over history. So he knew what the history was suggesting about, about prices, that copper was becoming more and more abundant every day as population increased. How is that possible? It's because copper becomes valuable when you add knowledge to it. So he challenges Ehrlich to this bet. And Ehrlich says, oh, yeah, I love, love the bet. I'll take money from an idiot any day. And uh, so they bet. And, you know, over the course of the 1980, from 1980 to 1990, those prices fell by 36%, the real prices. They hadn't done time price. They just did the real price. It fell by 36%. So Ehrlich has to write uh, – he has to write Simon this check for like $576. And so it's like, okay. And by that time, I'd gone off to college and I was studying economics. And, and I hear about this Simon guy. And it's like, okay, this guy's an economist, one. So he thinks economically. And he's making these predictions and making these bets. And I was very fortunate that he came to our university and gave a little talk. So I got to meet him. And so I dive into all his books and start reading all of his stuff. And it's like, this guy's right. This guy's right. And so the evidence and the theory both started to change my mind. And then it was just like, okay, well, I have to go off and do this thing in my life. And I, I pursued another profession for many years. But always in the back of my mind, it's like, well, what's happening on the Simon deal, you know, what's happening to resources. And you could see it all around you. If you, if you looked, it's like, wow, things are getting better every day. I mean, look at the, <laughs> look at what's happening here. The internet comes up and then the iPhone and all this technology and cars are getting better. Houses are getting better. It's like, everything seems to be getting better around us at the same time. Population's growing up. So 
you know, I go off and I start, uh, I start teaching economics. And part of that is we study resources. You know, what's, how do you price them? How do you measure them? What's the relationship? You know, fundamentally, what's the relationship? Are we really running out? Well, look at the data and see what the data suggests. And then this movie comes out. The Thanos movie comes out. So I'm kind of, you know, here we go again. Thanos is talking like Ehrlich and Ehrlich was talking like Malthus. And, and uh, you know, I'm on Twitter and I see this guy who makes this little post about the Simon Ehrlich bet. And so I reach out to him and that was Marion Tupi. <laughs> so thank heavens for Twitter. <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I find this guy and he writes this article. And so I reach out to him and I say, hey, this is a cool article. Uh, have you ever thought about doing it, doing the prices and time prices? And so we collaborate. We spend kind of a year getting all this data. So the data that we use is all – World Bank keeps track every month of all these commodity prices. So we go to the World Bank. We get all these nominal prices. And then we've got these economic historians that keep track of, of average hourly incomes. So, we, so we, have the, we have the data to build time prices on all of these commodities. So let's go do the work and see what happens. So begin with that. We come up with this paper. And we publish this paper. Cato publishes this paper. And part of the part of the work is we did these prices, but then we created this index called this the Simon Abundance Index, which uses Simon's kind of theoretic stuff. We added the time price to it, but we used his his foundation work to kind of build this index. And what we discovered once again is we're like 500% better than we were in 1980 if you measure things in time prices and compare them to the population. And then that article is what led to people saying, hey, you know, can you apply this methodology to other things? So we say, well, yeah, we'll go back to 1960. You know, the further you go back, the thinner the data gets. So it gets more of a challenge. But then we started discovering these other data sets. Uh, Sears Roebuck catalog. <laughs> it's a beautiful place to go because they got these catalogs you can go get and you pull up stuff and you can kind of find a blender in 1980 or a microwave or, you know, a kitchen appliance and you can figure the time price out. And you can you can go to walmart.com today and you can figure out what the time price is of basically the same product. And look at those two time prices. So we looked at these basic uh, commodities. Then we started looking at food food prices. We go back, we found a data set that was from 1850 of basic food uh, commodity prices. So that really astonished us, you know, how much, how much uh, more abundant we are today than, than 1850 in the U.S. We're 58 times more abundant. Uh, <laughs> so that's one of the data sets that we analyzed and we include in the book. We ended up with like 18 different data sets. So we have this theoretical uh, uh, set of uh, equations, and then we go out and apply it to all of these different data sets and see what they say. And it's, uh, it says, you know, for every 1% increase in population, people's personal abundance is growing like 3 to 4%. So it's like your slices are, are getting bigger and bigger. At the same time, you're, you're having more and more people. How can that be, Malthus? Because you 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 misunderstood what resources were. You thought they were atoms. They're not atoms. That's the knowledge that you add to an atom that makes it valuable. And at some point, 
it becomes pure knowledge. You think about communicating with one of these guys. You know, you used to have he had to had to have copper wire, and then you had to have fiber optics, big improvement. But now it's like you figured out how to send a signal through the atmosphere, and you're not you're just using you're just using you know <laughs> you're you're sending these these electrons. You're you're modulating you know this atmosphere. So you got this lots of knowledge and almost no atoms at all. And it becomes really, really valuable. So that was that was kind of how the book, you know, we spent basically four years kind of doing all this research and figuring out how to display it. How do we how do we show it on charts and how do we explain it? And and so we ended up doing this book and and then uh, <laughs> now we're working on another book, you know, maybe Superabundance 2 or something. And. Because we, you know, we're looking at all these other things. And it's like everywhere we look, like air conditioners. <laughs> what about air conditioners? Well, when they came out, you know, this is what the time price was. And today, they're like nothing compared to what they were. So anyway, I think it's use that perspective and, and look at things. And it will reveal to you, uh, you know, an entirely different thing than maybe what you've been told. This episode of Lead with a Question was produced by me, Rob Callen, with support from my co-hosts and BraveCore founders, Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen. The music you heard was composed by Ian as part of another project he's involved in called Moon Machine. Dave Arcade created our podcast cover art. Special thanks to Gail Pooley for joining us today. If you want to dig deeper into today's topic, you should definitely check out the book he co-authored with Marion Tupi called Superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. You can also visit superabundance.com for more info about the book, plus additional articles and media. If you want to learn more about the work we're doing at Brave Core, you can check out our website at bravecore.co. The Lead with a Question podcast is a production of Bravecore LLC. Thanks for being with us.